following messages were presented during the Friends of Israel 2009 Prophecy Conferences. It should be noted that a few of our speakers presented their messages with the aid of PowerPoint. Well, the Tribulation Church, and as you can tell by the title, I believe that the church is going into the Tribulation, but oh, wait a minute now, okay, before, we, uh, before Steve rushes up here to pull me off the, the podium, uh, let me explain here, okay, I, I firmly believe in the pre-Tribulation rapture of the church, but uh, the true church will be raptured up uh, before the start of the Tribulation period. However, there is going to be a, a false church, a counterfeit church, counterfeit Christians will be left behind, and that's the church I'm talking about. The so-called church will be going into the tribulation period. And we see this in Jesus and his message to the churches in uh, Revelation 2 and 3. He tells one of those churches they are going into the tribulation period. Now, as we interpret Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we understand that these were seven real churches but there would have been, no doubt, scores, perhaps even hundreds of churches in uh, that a area of Asia, Min Asia Minor as, by the time John wrote his book, by the time he penned that prophecy. But Jesus only picks out seven of those churches. And so a lot of Bible scholars feel that those seven churches were chosen because they represent seven different types of church churches and also seven periods of church history. And you see the... Uh, the chart I have up here, uh, not all scholars and conservative Christians would, would agree with this, but uh, to me it makes sense, and we'll see that as we go along. But let's look at the, I want to look at just two of these churches, uh, the, the two that will actually be going into the tribulation period. So let's look at Revelation in chapter 2. I invite you to turn into your Bible. Revelation chapter 2. And the first church is the church of Thyatira. Verse 18, under the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine bronze. I know thy works, and love, and service, and faith, patience, and thy works, the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou allowest that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, the name Thyatira means perpetual sacrifice. And each one of these church names has a name that is descriptive of it. And this is very descriptive today of the Roman Catholic Church. And I believe that this church symbolizes the, the, the Roman Catholic Church as the Church of the Dark Ages from 600 to 1500 A.D., Jesus commends them for their good works. They do a lot of good works. And we know that uh, Roman Catholicism puts a tremendous amount of uh, emphasis on works. In fact, so that's how they believe they're saved, by doing good works. However, they are condemned for tolerating Jezebel. Now, we're not really sure who this Jezebel is. It, it could have been a woman of that day, but I think it's more likely he's referring to the Jezebel of the Old Testament times. As you remember in the Old Testament, after the death of King Solomon, uh, one of the greatest kings Israel ever had, the kingdom of Israel was split into two. And you had the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. And Jeroboam was the king over the ten northern tribes, Rehoboam over the south. And Jeroboam was afraid that as the Jewish people, three times a year, they had to go up to Jerusalem, to the temple, to make their sacrifices. And he was afraid 
that the kingdom would revert back to Rehoboam. And so what he did is he set up a couple of idols, golden calves, and he says, you know, it's too far to go up to Jerusalem, just go to these golden calves. And so he perverted the worship of Jehovah, but it was still worship of Jehovah. But then as Ahab, King Ahab came along later, one of the kings in the north, and he takes Jezebel as his wife, she introduces a completely new system of worship, and it was the worship of Baal. And so it was that uh, the Roman Catholic Church has introduced a completely new system. I mean, they, they completely changed uh, Christianity and, and the way it's worshipped. And the exhortation is to view this church as counterfeit. Look what he says in verse 22. I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her, and he's talking here about spiritual adultery, uh, with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. So he says that the people in this church will be cast into the great tribulation. They are going to go into the tribulation period, and as the true church is raptured out before the tribulation period, the Catholic church, those of the Thyatira, a Thyatira-type church will proceed in to the tribulation period. And this is another reason, uh, or one of the reasons, <clears throat> I would view, say that he's um, not only looking at churches of that day, but they are churches of uh, the future and uh, represent church ages. And then verse 24, and he says, But I say unto you, uh, unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine. And there are some, a few in the Roman Catholic Church who don't follow that, uh, who believe in salvation uh, by faith, but they're very few. And notice, and he says, who have not known the depths of Satan. He refers to this church as the depths of Satan. I'll put on you no other burden, but that you have already. Hold fast till I come. Now, the Roman Catholic Church started ten false doctrines. First of all, justification by works, so it was no longer by faith, but you had to work your way to heaven. Secondly, baptismal regeneration, and the idea is that you, to get to heaven, you have to be baptized within the Catholic Church. Thirdly, the worship of images. Fourth, celibacy, celibacy of the priests. Confession to a priest, purgatory, transubstantiation, the idea that when they partake of communion, it actually becomes the actual body of the Lord. And we believe it's just the, the uh, communion is just symbolic of the body of the Lord. Indulgences. In the time of uh, Martin Luther, the teaching was in the Catholic Church, you know, they had to build these big uh, churches, St. Peter's Cathedral and all that. They had to raise a lot of money to do that. So they would teach that... Uh, uh, once your loved one had died and is no doubt suffering in purgatory, uh, which is like hell, and to get that person out of purgatory, you could buy an indulgence. And the teaching was that as soon as you would plunk your money in that coin box, and as soon as that coin hit the bottom of the box, your, the spirit of your loved one, the soul, went from purgatory uh, up to heaven. And they would buy this sheet of paper saying that, you know, that they were guaranteed heaven so they could basically live the way they want, wanted to. Indulgences, pen, penance, torment of the body, and then Mariology, the worship of Mary. And um, interesting, in the Old Testament, they, uh, and before New Testament times, female deities were worshipped in a lot of uh, different countries. Uh, in Egypt, uh, they worshipped the female uh, deity Isis or as I like to say, is-is. 
the Romans said Aurora or Diana. The, the Greeks uh, called her Aphrodite. Then as we get on, um, well, even in Jeremiah chapter 7, we find the Israelites were worshiping a female deity. They called her the Queen of Heaven. And Jeremiah condemns them for making sacrifices to her. So this is a very common thing throughout the Old Testament to worship a female deity uh, known as the Queen of Heaven. Well, in uh, around 300 A.D., as Constantine, the emperor, converted to Christianity, before that, Christians were persecuted. They were hunted down and killed. After he converted, uh, it then became hip and cool and the end thing to be a Christian. So you had pagans just flocking into the church. They were used to worshiping idols and statues. But in rather, you know, in church, we can't have an, an idol and a statue. So rather than an idol, a statue of Isis or some other Greek god or goddess, they made statues of Mary, the apostles, uh, Peter, Paul, the disciples, whatever. And Mary became the queen of heaven. And in fact... We have uh, around the world a lot of different shrines to Mary. And tonight, uh, as, as I'm talking here now about the, the one world religion, uh, it might be, seem difficult uh, to see how the, you know, all these different religions in the world are going to come together and unite. But uh, kind of interesting, one common denominator that a lot of these religions around the world have is a re, uh, worship or a reverence of Mary. In these, even in these different countries, they have had apparitions, visions of Mary. Now, in India, what's the main religion in India? Well, it's Hinduism. You know, millions of Hindus, but they, even there, they have apparitions of, of Mary, and they refer to her, her as Our Lady of Good Health. And then, for example, in um, China, well, Buddhism's uh, the main religion there, but uh, they refer to Mary as Our Lady of China. Even the Quran, uh, the Muslims have a whole surah devoted, a whole chapter devoted to Mary. And Surah 3, verse 42 says, Allah has chosen you, Mary. He has made you pure and exalted you above all womankind. On December 8, 1854, Pope Pius IX pronounced that the Blessed, Blessed Virgin Mary was exempt from all stain of original sin. This is known in Roman Catholicism as the Immaculate Conception. I remember hearing that term and I always thought they were talking about Jesus and I was shocked to hear that, though, they're talking about Mary. Mary was born without sin. She lived her whole life without sin. And uh, she was also pronounced at that time in 1854 the Queen of Heaven. And Newsweek magazine reported August 25th, 1997, that in the last four years, the Pope at that time had received over 4 million signatures from 157 countries supporting Mary as the co-redemptorate. Uh, notable supporters was, uh, were uh, Mother Teresa, 500 bishops, and 42 cardinals. Now, they have not uh, you know, like confirmed this yet, but there's a lot of support among Roman Catholics to make Mary the co-redeemer uh, with Jesus. So, the church of Thyatira goes into the tribulation period, but there's another church, the church of Laodicea. Look over to chapter 3. And uh, starting in verse 14, under the angel in the church of Laodicea, these things saith the Amen, faithful true witness, the beginning of the creation, I know thy works, thou art neither 
cold nor hot, I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm, neither cold or hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now I take the view that this church, the Laodicean church, is an apostate church and that most of the people in it are not believers. Uh, a lot of commentators on Revelation would view uh, the Laodicean church, they would say, well, you know, it was a believing church, but they just were not living for the Lord. Um, I personally, uh, I think uh, he's going a little further here because if you, you look at the language he's using, he's, it's language that is used of unbelievers. He says in verse 15, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Now, Jesus said in John 10 of believers, we're in his hand, right? And he said, no man can pluck you, pluck us out of his hand. But he says to these people, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. That is language that would be used of an unbeliever. Verse 17, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Those two words, blind and naked, are never used in Scripture of believers. Believers, we, you know, we have vision, we have spiritual vision, we can, you know, spiritually we can see, and believers are never referred to as being naked. And over in chapter 6 of Revelation, he sees the souls of those who are beheaded, and they are given white robes, and they are clothed. The believer is always clothed. That's in the Old and New Testament. Uh, so, again, he's using language here of unbelievers. And then um, in verse 20, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come to him and sup with him and he with me. So, again, the picture here is Jesus standing outside of this church. He is outside of the hearts of these people, and he wants to come in. So it is an, it is an apostate church, an unbelieving church, and they will go into the tribulation period. Now let's look at Revelation chapter 17 as we're talking, looking at the uh, one world government that these tribulation churches will be involved in. And in verse 3 he says, I saw a woman sit on a scarlet-covered beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. What does the picture up there look like? Does it look like a woman sitting on a beast? This is an official coin in the European Union. And it's minted. It's one of their main coins. This symbol goes back to the 1940s. I think it comes right out of Revelation 17. Now, they say it's, it's Europa uh, sitting on Zeus. But in verse 5, he says, On her uh, forehead it was the name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So what does he mean there? mother of harlots and idolatry is that the idolatry started at Babylon. And if we were to go back to Genesis chapter 11, uh, that was man's first attempt at a one-world government, a one-world economy, and a one-world religion. It was not time for it. You know, God confounded the languages. You know, you know the story. And man scattered or it was scattered abroad. But in the end times, it will be time man will finally achieve his ultimate goal, the one-world government, the one-world economy, the one-world religion. This is an artist's rendition of the Tower of Babel, and we don't know what it looked like. Yeah, actually, it probably did not look like this, but uh, he made it circular with the top unfinished because the tower was unfinished. This is the EU building in France. 
exact replica. The, the architect purposely designed it after the Tower of Babel because there is a fascination with Babylon. And this is what we would expect for the end times, uh, the uniting and bringing together the religions of the world and um, actually setting it up at Babylon. Now, a couple of articles that really show how far we are along in this is a survey reveals majority of clergy in every mainline Protestant denomination do not believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. A majority of clergy from mainline Protestant denominations are much more likely to identify as liberal than conservative, according to a new in-depth survey. According to the survey, two-thirds of mainline clergy, now remember, this is clergy, not laypeople, two-thirds of mainline clergy disagree with this statement, quote, the Bible is the inerrant word of God, both in matters of faith and historic, geographical, and other secular manners. Okay? Two-thirds disagree with that statement. Another uh, interesting um, article, most U.S. Christians don't believe in Satan or the Holy Spirit. The majority of American Christians do not believe that Satan is a real being or that the Holy Spirit is a living entity, the latest Barna survey found. Nearly 6 out of 10 Christians either strongly agreed or somewhat agreed with the statement that Satan is not a living being but is a symbol of evil. And then uh, more recently, uh, this article, Rick Warren asked Muslims for help. Now, it was back, I think back in the 80s, we had uh, what we call a, a document that was written called Christians and uh, Catholics and Christians Together, and we were told that we need to join hands with, with Catholics. Well, now um, we're told we need to join hands with Muslims. Uh, posted July 14th, in a controversial address to the nation's largest Muslim organization, Rick Warren asked for their cooperation in addressing some of the world's problems that governments haven't been able to solve. Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California, told about 8,000 Muslims at the Islamic Society for North American's annual convention in Washington July 4th. He was deeply humbled and, and applauded their courage for inviting an, an evangelical pastor. Uh, during his 20-minute address, Warren set forth four specific ways Muslims and Christians can work together, maintaining our separate traditions, maintaining our convictions without compromise uh, for the world's greater good. Now, I'm trying to figure out how this is going to work. Uh, if we're working side by side out on the streets to stop gang violence with Muslims and this gang member wants to be saved, uh, does he then start going to the mosque or is he going to start coming to our church? Or if the drug addict, uh, you know, if we're working side by side with the Muslims, you know, getting these druggies off drugs and he, this person wants a deeper faith, uh, is he going to uh, start uh, praying to Allah or is he going to start coming to our church and believe in Jesus? I'm not sure how that works. Uh, one more quote, he says, uh, Warren said, quote, Friends, this is the time for action. This is the time for civility. This is the time for respecting each other. It is time for the common good that we work together because some problems are so big you have to team tackle them. Well, I thought to team tackle a problem you had to be on the same team. <laughs> Last time I checked, uh, Muslims and Christians, we're not on the same team. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, Muslims, uh, they don't even believe Jesus was crucified for sin. Did you know that? They believe that a mistake was made when the Romans were crucifying Jesus and actually Judas was crucified in place of Jesus. 
course, they believe that Muhammad is the true prophet. They believe in the Quran, and on and on we go. But this is all part of the end times, the, the coming together, ecumenical, this great one-world religion. And folks, as we see this stuff happening, the Lord is coming soon. Amen?